بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم Assalamu alaikum uh, greetings of peace to everybody thank you for joining us here uh, welcome to Zaytuna College's community forum program uh, my name is Munas Tome uh, for those who are able to pronounce Arabic names, Mu'nes Torma. And I'm an instructor here. I teach Islamic legal philosophy and US constitutional law here at Zaytuna College. Um, I also work with Dawood Yassin, who is the coordinator of learning outside the classroom here at Zaytuna College on a committee that organizes this community forum program. Uh, since Dawood is traveling today, I extend a welcome to you on his behalf. Uh, before I hand off the program to our moderator, Kristen, uh, I would like to share with you all a little bit about the Community Forum program. As many of you, or most of you probably know, Zaytuna is a four-year liberal arts college, and the curriculum here is set. There aren't, um, there aren't electives. And so the students here uh, go through the program and the curriculum in a cohort freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, and take their classes together. This allows for each class to get to know each other very well, but it does mean that Zaytuna students sometimes do not have an opportunity to engage with other Zaytuna students from other cohorts. And even within the cohort, the human tendency to form cliques based on ethnic identity, method of engagement with or practicing Islamic tradition, socioeconomic and or other factors means that students may not have an opportunity even within a cohort to engage with others who do not share their perspective or their background. Furthermore, although Zaytuna College is a co-ed college, Muslim notions of modesty and propriety may mean that students may not have the opportunity to hear the perspectives of other students of the opposite gender. The Community Forum program was designed as a space where Zaytuna students could hear perspectives from each other around topics of relevance to their lives and relevance to their education here at Zaytuna. Stated another way, the Community Forum is a place that encourages conversations that would otherwise not take place. So just to provide one example, at a Community Forum last year, the students discussed and strongly disagreed about whether Muslims should engage with, quote, pop culture. Uh, there were those who advocated engagement, pointing to the fact that, uh, you know, the reality that pop culture defines so much for m many people in our society today, particularly youth, whether Muslim or not Muslim. And, uh, you know, opposing that were those who asserted that popular culture includes inherently problematic attitudes and assumptions that Muslims ought to refrain from, you know, taking on or engaging in. Uh, hence, Community Forum is a place where ideas are shared and discussed in an atmosphere of honesty and mutual respect and a recognition that those who do not share our views may still have a legitimate point, even if at the end of the day we disagree with their viewpoint, that there may be some points underlying their viewpoint that, that require uh, deep consideration and deliberation. This semester, we have been experimenting with opening up the Community Forum program to the broader community outside of Zaytuna College. Hence, from time to time, uh, when engaging topics that are of more general interest to the broader community uh, are you know, the subject of the community forum, the community forum program can become an open forum aimed at encouraging broader conversations in the broader community. 
With that introduction, I would like to now hand off the program to our moderator, Kristen George. Uh, she is a doctoral candidate in sociology at UC Berkeley. Her research examines the theological and organizational determinants of religious responses to social change. Uh, her dissertation focuses on American Christian churches and the movement to abolish slavery. And she is also interested in contemporary Muslim discourses on gender. And with that, I hand it off. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum, and thank you for that introduction, Munis. Um, and I want to thank you all for coming, and for I, I want to thank Zaytuna College also for putting on this exciting event and, uh, and for inviting me to be a part of it. Um, tonight's community forum is an opportunity to learn about and discuss the Women's Mosque of America, and also to discuss other strategies for responding to the barriers women face in accessing religious spaces and religious knowledge. So we are joined this evening by the founder and president of the mosque, Hasna Maznavi, and uh, she is, in addition to being the founder and the president of the Women's Mosque of America, is also a uh, comedy writer and a director who's committed to changing the way that Muslims are represented in mainstream American media. Also with us tonight is Zahra Bilou, a recent khatiba at the Women's Mosque. Zahra is also familiar to most of you as the uh, executive director of Care Bay Area, um, and she's also an award-winning lawyer leading the struggle to protect the civil rights of American Muslims. And finally, we are joined by Dr. Rania Awad, who is familiar to most of you as a faculty member here at Zaytuna College and also at uh, Stanford University. And she's also the founder of the Rahma Foundation, which is an organization devoted to providing education for Muslim women and girls. So um, to begin our panel today, uh, we're going to turn first to Dr. Rania, um, who's going to give us uh, some background on her own experience with women's leadership and women's uh, educational institutions, as well as provide her perspective on the Women's Mosque of America. Assalamu alaikum. How's everyone doing? Mashallah, it's nice to see so many faces. Welcome. Since this is um, home base, I get to say welcome. Mashallah. <laughs> and especially to our guests that are here today. We're very happy to uh, be hosting you tonight. So, you know, in, in this discussion on the Women's Mosque, I thought what I would do was actually take a step back and talk a little bit about my experience with female scholarship, with a space needed, the space needed for women to both grow spiritually um, and academically. And for me, it's kind of interesting, like out of all the speakers I potentially could be sitting here tonight, you know, in terms of uh, from the academic or scholarship perspective, I happen to be a female teacher who has studied primarily under female teachers in spaces where are, that are predominantly designated for a woman, which is kind of a unique situation, particularly in the modern era. Um, and with that, I just want to share the experience that came with that, having been born and bred in that experience, if you will. Uh, because it means, first and foremost, that I absolutely understand where this initiative is coming from, and I appreciate where the initiative is coming from. Okay, I'm being told I need to speak louder. Is that better? Okay, inshallah. All right, so um, just to give you a little bit of background, I studied in Damascus, Syria, 
at a time when it was still feasible and possible to study in Damascus, subhanAllah. And studied primarily and initially under the, and at the feet of uh, female teachers who had their own struggles becoming female teachers um, of this deen. And really, this is, we're talking back a good number, a good 50 years ago, let's say, early 70s, where the woman really did not have a space to learn and study the way the men did. And all of my teachers have this story, reoccurring story that they tell of how when they first wanted to set out and study the traditional classical sciences, it was really difficult to find any male teachers that would take them on as students in the first place. And so, you know, the, 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 the main teachers, the male, main male teachers that took them on are kind of like these flagships, you know, these people who, who were bucking the trend of their time to take on female students. So we're talking in Quran and fiqh and hadith and sirah and all the traditional Islamic sciences. Um, and so knowing that what you needed to form was kind of a space for women to study, to grow spiritually, and to have suhbah, or sisterhood, essentially. And those, those spaces were really important and not existent at that time. What then developed, and I really like the saying, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? So you see 50 years later the proof that's in the pudding, right? So what you see out of a space that develops for women is immense female scholarship, right? To where, and you can see this in their students as living examples, you can see this in this, their scholarly works that we study here, some of which we study here at Zaytuna, and that are prevalent, um, particularly in the Arab lands, because majority of them are in the Arabic language. But it's amazing to me that whenever any scholarship, male or female, get hold of these scholarly texts, they say, wow, what is this? You know, And this is developed by women. And so, again, this is where we kind of say gender, how relevant is the gender question? It's relevant. But to say that whatever, whenever you make a space to allow women to flourish and grow, you really see that happen. And this is a prime example. What I do want to say, and you should know that the, that growth happened because of political oppression, the same political regime we see causing tons of trouble in Syria right now, is the same political regime they were pushing against and uh, needing to make themselves a, a female space, right? Um, so a lot of the work was actually underground. And despite all that, you find this immense scholarship that flourished amongst the women. You find hafidat of Quran that outnumber, we're talking in the hundreds of thousands of women who have received ijazas in tajweed and in hifz, right? Meaning completely have memorized the Quran, and some of which in all the various qira'at, all the recitations of Quran. You see women who have studied all the four madahab and become faqihat in those madahab and have scholarly texts with it. You find women who are doing comparative works in sirah and fiqh and hadith and the rest, and I'm happy to show you all of their works if you're not familiar with them. Why do I take a step back and say all of this to you as my preface? I say all of this because I think it's really important that you understand where I'm coming from. This is the tradition in which I grew up, essentially meaning not that I was born and raised there, but that's where I went to study. These are my teachers. And I say this to you as a, a Shafi, <laughs> teacher of Shafi fiqh specifically, because we're going to find, and I, this is not meant to be a fiqh discussion, but you're going to find that when you talk about the legal aspects of things, that of all the schools you possibly could speak about in terms of women-led prayers, which is part of our topic tonight, you're going to find that the Shafi school doesn't even bat an eye to this discussion, right? They have no qualms with this at all. 
first of all. <laughs> Second of all, you're going to find that I'm, in addition to the Shafi piece, that I'm coming from a space where studying with girls and women and at the feet of women was an amazing experience. I then went on to study with the male teachers as well. But let me tell you, as a woman, praying in the jama'ah of women, so like in the house, what we, we might call the dormitories, like the dormitories you all live in now, the dormitory in which I studied with when, in when I was in Damascus, you're talking about a house of about 20 women who are all studying different dormitories. I was in one with about 20 women who are all studying the dean and their secular studies and getting up for tahajjud prayers every single day, praying them together. Now, as a woman, if you've never prayed in a jama'ah of women, shoulder to shoulder with other women, and have had that experience and that connection, with all due respect to any jama'ah I've ever prayed in my entire life, right, it does not compare to that experience and that feeling. There is something in the sisterhood of praying together and there is something in the recitation of the Qur'an of the woman. And there is something in the bond that happens spiritually. And so I say, and I, I joke around all the time because I teach different madahab and I have some of my Shafi students in the audience where I, I can see they're smiling at me because I'm always trying to convert people to the Shafi school. <laughs> Mashallah. But particularly women in saying, you're really missing out on this experience. Alhamdulillah. And so, <laughs> you know, it's, there's something really special to that. And I also share that in studying, you know, there's the formal study of the dean where you're sitting at the feet of a scholar, you're holding your books, your texts, you're studying. Then there's the kind of study, and this is where women always complain about connecting with the scholars, especially when they're opposite gender. There is a formality and a barrier that in our dean we can't transgress. Yet if it's the same gender teacher, guess what? You end up having a situation like I did, where you're literally memorizing Quran and doing your tasmir, your recitation, following your teacher around her house as she's folding her laundry. <laughs> and that's awesome, right? <laughs> or washing her dishes, literally. And you're like, you know, whatever topic you're I'm talking about, like high level discussions of fiqh, and she's like washing her dishes and going, Aidi, Aidi, repeat, repeat, <laughs> you got it wrong, say it again, you know, and it's just the most amazing thing because then these scholars become real people, right, they're real people with real lives, and as women, I can't tell you how important this was for me, because it showed me that these women were scholars of this dean, and that was, women are capable of such things, and all, of, and specifically the uh, female scholarship of Syria is unique in that, they were also scholars in their secular fields. And so people often ask me, how do you do this doctor MD thing plus the, plus the, you know, the dean teaching thing? And I say, you must understand, I am the progeny of my teachers. They were all like this too. And when people are like, oh wow, and I'm like, no, no. I pale in comparison to these teachers. You're only saying, wow, because you haven't met them, right? There was a strong tradition of both studying this dean, having a foot in the dean, and having a foot in the dunya, and have being able to accomplish both, and high levels of both, in addition to being wives and mothers. So this is really important, because it's important to see, thank you, important to know that this kind of female scholarly tradition allows for the space needed for women to grow and flourish. So all of that is to preface and say, I understand the premise from which women's mosque is coming from. And I agree with that premise. And I agree with the idea that women need their space to grow. And it is not enough to just say, we welcome women to our institutions. I believe that women need their own institutions sometimes. 
Now, as the discussion goes on, we'll probably talk about some of the more details of women's mosque and where exactly does that fit into the larger kind of scholarly tradition. But let me just end here by saying the general premise, not only do I understand and appreciate, but I myself come from a tradition of female scholarship. And with that, I'll end. Okay, next we'll hear from Hasna, the founder and the president of the Women's Mosque of America to tell us about how she, uh, how she came to build a women's mosque, not physically with her own hands in this case, but, uh, <laughs> um, but also you know, the inspiration and the, the motivation behind this project for her. Thank you, assalamu alaikum. Um, so first, I just want to really thank uh, Zaytuna for inviting me and for having this topic. Um, I, I think it's a really great uh, um, thing that you guys are engaging this topic and having an all-female panel. Isn't that great? <laughs> um, so one of the first things that I, uh, I usually talk about when I tell the story of the mosque is uh, how the story was misconstrued. Um, so we launched uh, in January 30th of this past year. And um, right away, one thing that I noticed was that uh, the stories that were coming out were framing the creation of the mosque as if it was some sort of reaction to uh, male Muslim male oppression or a reaction to um, the, the state of mosques. And while there is definitely a strong reform element in this mosque, um, the story was completely wrong. So um, just to give a little background, um, when I was maybe seven, I decided, um, I, I made this like secret uh, dua between me and God that I was going to build a mosque before I died. And that was gonna be my sadaqa jariya or my legacy that was gonna keep on going. Um, and at that time, I had no idea that it was gonna be a women's mosque. Um, in fact, uh, you know, I was collecting ideas for this dream mosque of mine um, throughout the course of my entire life. Uh, and there were hundreds of elements that went into it and the women's mosque idea literally was one of the last elements that went into it. Um, so right off the bat, uh, the way I would frame this mosque is that it is a dream mosque from the perspective of a woman, that woman being me. Um, and another thing uh, is that, you know, when that story came out and people were um, kind of framing it as this uh, act of rebellion, I mean, I think I saw one headline that said, Muslim women fight back and start a mosque of their own. Um, I think what happened was that the Muslim community, you know, we get attacked so much in the media already, um, got a little bit defensive. And as a result, um, we, didn't, we got a lot of support, but there was a little bit of a backlash right in the beginning. Um, and I think it, it came from this, um, this state of defensiveness. Um, but the true story is that, you know, along with this being a lifelong dream, you know, the mosque took so many different shapes throughout the course of my life. So when I was little, it was all about, you know, I wanna have this beautiful dome and architecture, and I was thinking uh, about the, the space itself. Um, 
then when I got older, um, I started to, to think about other things. I was spending a lot of time commuting to, ho commuting to Hollywood. Um, and then I was thinking, you know, people from all over the world come to America, and then people from all over America come to California. And when they come to California, they come to Hollywood. So that's where I'm going to build this mosque, because um, I want to have do the most dawah uh, as possible. Um, and then I was like, oh, wait, Hollywood's really dirty. Um, this is not a good place to do it. Um, maybe I'll have interfaith prayer pods on street corners because there's never any place to pray um, and then at a certain point I was like okay I can't have higher security guards for each prayer pod so what if I made this a virtual mosque right um, and I'm kind of taking you through this journey with me just to show that it really was about creating an ideal mosque um, and the the final tipping point for me was just thinking like you know I have this idea it's been in the back of my mind my whole life what am I waiting for? You know, even if I have the money to build it, it's not going to happen without God's permission. So why don't I say Bismillah? And I opened up a Word document, um, I think in 2010, and I just started to write my ideas down. Um, and this is something that I don't usually talk about, but um, I'll I'll talk about it in this uh, context because I know a lot of you probably. Um, can relate to praying istikhara, uh, but I am a istikhara addict. I pray it <laughs> uh, before every single decision. It's it's become like a, a lifelong uh, or a, a sort of philosophy for me. Um, and so for me, actually, um, when I started to kind of narrow down the different titles for the mosque, one uh, title that kept coming to my mind was Masjid An-Nisa. Um, and at the time, I had no idea what that meant. Um, but I kept, every time I would pray, I would kind of hear this inspiration, Masjid An-Nisa. Um, and then finally, when I, I prayed the formal istikhara, um, that's, that's the one, that's the title that, that finally came to me. Um, and so I, uh, I used Google Translate, and it said the women's mosque. And I was like, that's a dumb idea. Um, why would I want to make a women's mosque? Um, you know, we should reform all mosques. And we shouldn't just branch off and start a women's mosque, right? Um, and so I kept resisting the idea, um, but I kept praying. And um, I, I think like three distinct times, I finally decided that um, this is what I had to do. Um, and also, you know, one of the, the really huge turning points for me was um, being invited to a conference by Dr. Amina Wadud, who's here in the audience. Um, and it was recon uh, reconstituting female authority in Islam. Um, and at that conference, I, my mind was completely opened. I, for the first time, learned about the tens of thousands of female Muslim scholars that helped spread Islam in the earliest years after the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him's death. Um, and I started to just learn more about my history. I, I learned from uh, Dr. Khalid Abul Fadl, who had a really great um, metaphor. Um, and he was talking about the, the earliest scholars of Islam. And he, he posed this metaphor. He was saying, you know, could you imagine if there were a bunch of scholars uh, and their job was to come up with a fatwa about stem cell research? And all of these scholars, uh, none of them were medical experts, none of them are doctors, none of them are consulting doctors or medical ex experts, but they're coming up with a fatwa about stem cell research. Would you say that their fatwa is complete? And then he drew the parallel and he said, well, this is the same state as what happened with 
uh, women's involvement um, in, in Islamic law. Um, you know, that firsthand female experience was largely left out, even though a lot of the fuqaha actually had female teachers. Um, and that had a sort of trickle-down effect into the way, uh, you know, Muslim women are treated in our religion and um, sort of some of the, the laws that came of it. So learning about that, learning about our, um, our legacy, um, getting more reconnect or getting reconnected to that, um, I uh, enrolled for, I, I enrolled in this class with Sheikh Rima Yusuf, um, who was one of the advisors to the women's mosque. And uh, over the course of a year, I took this class with her online. Um, and I would only, it was just, one week or one day a week, uh, and I would watch her videos online. But after that year was over, I felt so empowered um, just having that female religious authority figure to look up to, um, who's a hafiz, um, who has translated over 200 books, uh, classical books, um, from Arabic to English. Just having that role model, I didn't even realize that I was disempowered until I felt what it was like to be empowered. Um, so after that year was over, um, I finally was like, you know what, what am I waiting for? Um, I just need to hear from a woman on Fridays. Uh, I can't listen to a man anymore. I need to, I need to hear from a woman. Um, and my only option at that time were the progressive spaces, which I didn't feel really fit with my, um, my religious practice. And also one thing that, my one criticism of the progressive spaces is that um, a lot of times they, they claim to be inclusive, but they're not inclusive, ironically, of conservative people. Um, so I really wanted to create a middle ground space where both progressive and conservative women could come and hear a woman give a khutbah, could connect to that female religious authority figure, grow inspired um, in the same way as you know, a women's college or a women's gym um, serves to empower women. This would be a, like a place of, uh, of growth and inspiration for Muslim women where they could then take that inspiration and return to their communities, return to their local mosques, um, and uh, join the boards, take on positions of leadership. Um, and so I'll just end with saying that, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, or one of the misconceptions is that this is just for women. Um, and I'll be very honest, uh, empowering women does not motivate me at all. Um, the thing that motivates me is uplifting the ummah. Uh, and if you look at our mission statement, it is that we seek to uplift the Muslim ummah by empowering the Muslim women within. So it's not just about empowering women, it's about uplifting the entire ummah, recognizing that we have to untap the potential of half of our ummah in order to have a stronger ummah for all. Thank you. And uh, now with that, we're going to move on to hear from Zahra uh, about the experience of speaking at the Women's Mosque as a khatiba and, uh, and also about her early experiences with, you know, different mosque environments and what led her to want to be a part of this. Thank you, Kristen and Zaytuna College for coordinating and to Dr. Rania and, and Hasna for opening the conversation. I think I'm grateful to not be the first speaker or the second speaker on this panel. Um, I thought it was really, I think, perfect that Dr. Rania mentioned um, having been raised in the Shafi fiqh 
because I was raised in the Hanafi school. And so the first time I prayed with other women was in my 20s. Um, I was actually raised to believe that it was not permissible. Not that it was something that other schools did and was permissible in those schools, but that it was not permissible, that it was not acceptable, that this was not okay. Um, I start there because when I talked to Kristen prior to the panel, I said, maybe in a way that's less fortunate than Hasna's, I do come at this from, I think, a place of trauma with my experience as a female activist, as a, as someone who grew up in a family that studied Islam and practiced Islam, and then as a female leader in our community. My brother and I both began our hivs probably, I think I, we were both about six or seven years old. We're just, we're less than two years apart. And I remember the conversation at home when it became apparent that as I hit puberty, I would lose one week a month in class because my teacher wouldn't sit with me when I was menstruating. And of course, a related conversation to this was whether or not I should even be inside the mosque when I was menstruating. My brother, who I love, and this, none of this, maybe the thing I should have said first is none of this is a critique of my family, who I credit for having raised me as an empowered woman despite so much of this cultural baggage. Um, and some of these like more difficult interpretations that have made practicing Islam challenging for women at times. But my brother went and studied abroad and came back and finished his hivs at home and then continued to study abroad and is today a scholar and mashallah I think is a really inspirational leader. I didn't have that. So I stopped memorizing probably around 13. And to tell a teenager, a young teenager, who's the only Muslim girl at school wearing a hijab that her religion doesn't have space for her at that age has a negative impact, right? And I was fortunate to keep going to the mosque to keep learning, but I never finished. And it changed my relationship with my faith, right? And so through high school and through college, I'm meeting other women who are saying, well, we are praying with each other, or this is strange, right? And I'm also having conversations with male leaders in my Muslim Student Association who are saying things like, no, women can't lead organizations. I actually still remember the conversation where I was told, why don't you do all the work but not be the MSA president because that's not going to go over well. Those words were said in the last, I mean, to date myself a bit, in the last 15 years, right? Um, that those words actually came out of someone's mouth are not something that I think one forgets, right? So overcoming that has, has always been interesting, I would say. Um, and then fast forward, college, law school, and I get to care where I'm fortunate and blessed to be able to lead one of our larger offices across the country. And still, very often, I am the only woman at the table. Still, very often, male leaders in our community won't speak to me, despite the fact that 90% of our clientele in certain areas of the work that we do is male, right? So they'll call me on my cell phone on a weekend if the FBI is at their front door, but if I'm in their masjid trying to enter through the main entrance, I don't mean the men's entrance, I mean the main entrance, it is everyone's business where I'm going to and from. Just a couple of weeks ago, actually, in the Bay Area, I was putting down flyers for an event that we're having this Saturday. You should come. It's our 21st anniversary banquet. Um, and we're hosting a female keynote speaker, Linda Sarsour. I had to do that. Um, <laughs> so I'm putting down flyers, and I'm entering through the area where the flyers go. And an 11-year-old boy makes it his business to come to me, to tell me that the women's entrance is around the back. 
there are no words to describe this, right? So it, this is the context from with which I come to, to the women's mosque. It's unfortunate that that's where I come from, but it is. And I acknowledge it because I think it's the, the honest thing for me to do. So when I start to hear from Hasna and friends that they're starting a women's mosque, I'm excited. I'm excited about finally feeling at home in a space where I could see the speaker, where I could connect with the speaker, where maybe they're going to have walked in my shoes for even just a minute and know that I don't want to be talked to about my clothing or my motherly obligations or my wifely obligations or any of that sort at Jama prayer every week. And I was humbled and honored to be invited to be a khatiba. And so when I got that, it must have been an email or a phone call, my immediate reaction was yes. I didn't even think. Like, I wish I were an istikhara addict, right? Like, it might have saved Hasna a little bit of grief as I had second thoughts later. But I immediately said yes. I was, I was excited. I was honored. I didn't think I was deserving. And some of that's interesting, too, for me because I speak publicly sometimes many times a week on a regular basis throughout the year. And yet here I was doubting whether or not I had the skill set to give a khutbah. I didn't even think what would my male colleagues think. That comes later. And maybe something related to this is that one of the advantages that my male counterparts within even my own organization have is the bully pulpit, the captive audience of being able to give a khutbah. So when I'm talking to my male counterparts within CARE who are leading comparably sized organizations, sized offices, one of the things that comes up often is they're able to do that because they can get in front of 2,000 people every Friday. And you have to book them a year in advance to do that. And I think to myself, gosh, if I could give a Know Your Rights presentation from a khutbah platform, or if I could talk about what our religious obligation is to push back against Islamophobia or to not let the FBI into our homes from a khutbah platform every week, like how much more impactful would my civil rights work be? And so five years of, six years now, of not having access to that platform, of constantly inviting males into my region to give khutbahs for me about our work, and this opportunity comes along. And I said yes, immediately. And then I did a Sakara, and then I talked to colleagues. And the two things that I'll share about that, that was interesting for me, the first was I got both enthusiastic support as well as critique from men and women. So I found men who were, oh my god, that's so great, like yes, absolutely do that. And I found women who were like, don't, don't do that. Don't do that at all. And people had their own ways of giving the, the feedback too, which I think was really telling. So the feedback I appreciated most was not the vitriolic, volatile, I must call you and tell you right now why this is wrong, um, but rather the people who thought, you know, I disagree with this, but let me wait till I talk to you in person and hear you out. And that was actually really important to me. And the thing I'll close on is the actual experience of giving the khutbah. So I've mentioned that I frequently coordinate for my male counterparts within CARE to give khutbahs. And it's pretty mechanical. Uh, there's a scheduler, there's a committee, sometimes they ask for a video and then they plug someone in. That was not what I got with Hasna. Hasna wanted to get on the phone with me for an hour and go through her manual. I hope it's okay that I'm sharing this. And go through her manual of all of the best practices for a khutbah, which I imagine she developed somewhere in the like 20 years of planning for a mosque, right? And it addressed everything from what is welcome in the space. And I was really impressed by how much was welcome in the space. And so what I mean by that is one of the critiques was whether or not you could get away with doing the, the two rakah only. 
And so for that reason, as a khatiba, I had the option of doing two or four, but I needed to let them know and make sure that my intentions were consistent and that I was communicating. People were welcomed into the space with or without headscarves. The leader should wear a headscarf, but attendees didn't have to. And I, as a khatiba, was specifically instructed not to body shame them, right? So to not talk about clothing so loosely. I was asked that if I was going to reference hadith, that it be like strong hadith that I could then back up if the attendees questioned me about them, right? Um, I was asked not to critique other faiths because there might be members of other faiths or people with other faith families in the audience. I was asked not to critique American culture because maybe someone comes to the khutbah having celebrated Halloween and doesn't want to feel, leave feeling like a terrible Muslim the next day, right? That that was not the experience we wanted them to have. That was probably the most impactful part for me, was thinking about all of the considerations of what is driving people to feel less and less connected to mosques. And instead thinking, how do we do it better? How do we reach more people? How do we ensure that for whatever reason someone walked in the, do in the door, that they left feeling spiritually uplifted, better connected to community, and wanting to come back the next week. So uh, the next stage of our program tonight is gonna be some discussion. I'm gonna ask our panelists questions and get them in conversations with one another, after which point we'll yield the question, the, the floor to you all and hear your questions as well. Um, so having got, gotten a sense now of where, you know, where folks are coming from on, these, on this issue, the question I wanna ask to each of you uh, is why to your understanding, the Women's Mosque of America has generated as much controversy as it has. Any volunteers for, for starting that one off? Dr. Rania, do you wanna? Yeah, you know, I was confused about that too, uh, because <laughs> <laughs> women's mosques exist all throughout the world and um, they've died out most, uh, you know, uh, throughout most of the world, and um, the majority are in China, but they exist still in at least a dozen countries, I believe. Um, I think the difference, though, is that this mosque, or in those other mosques, um, women generally don't give khutbahs, or they, it, they don't have Jummah prayers. So that element was new. Um, and, uh, you know, what started off as a controversy, I think we viewed as uh, it didn't have to be a controversy. So, um, you know, one of the things we're very adamant about in our space is um, not only respecting but celebrating the diversity of opinions in our religion. Um, and, you know, when we talk about Islamic Renaissance and, um, you know, having this Renaissance shaped by Muslim women's voices and perspectives and scholarship and leadership, uh, one of the things that we really want to revive is the tradition of beautiful disagreement. Um, that has really been lost in our religion and um, uh, especially today. So one of the things that we've done, which with what could have been a controversy, um, you know, there are certain madhabs, there are certain schools of thought that say women cannot lead prayer or cannot give a khutbah. Um, and we could have been a space that said, okay, fine, then don't come. But instead, what we did was we celebrated and respected those um, differences of opinions. And so within our Jummah service, we actually have 
um, the khutbah, then the two rakat jama prayer, and then we always have a an optional congregational dhuhr prayer. And usually about 10 to t- uh, 10 to 20% of our congregation will pray that. Um, and then whenever we get a khatiba, this has happened twice now um, in our 10 months so far, uh, we'll sometimes get a khatiba who says, well, I don't believe women can give khutbas or I'm not comfortable or, you know, uh, we had one who was maliki. Um, and we give those women the option to come and give a pre-khutba bayan. So that's just a talk that's not part of the Jummah service. Um, we kind of borrowed that from the Hanafi school of thought. Um, and or the Hanafi uh, style uh, Jummah practice. So um, we'll have that woman come and give a talk and then we'll have another woman give a shortened khutbah and lead the two rakat prayer. Um, and then we'll I'll either have the first woman lead the her prayer or we'll have someone else do it if she doesn't believe in uh, leading the her prayer. So there was some controversy in the beginning, but I think um, the way that we handled it is just to diffuse it and say that everyone is welcome. So I would say that misinformation was was a huge part of it, right? And Hasna has said that, but I remember, I remember a conversation that I had with one of the other board members when someone started to say, eventually they want to include adult males in in their congregation. And I thought, well, I haven't heard that. Why is this other leader in the community? And this was a leader in the community who was telling this to someone else. And I thought, you know, that it's just it's reckless. But some people were sadly, repeating misinformation that they were hearing, right? So community member has a concern, goes to a leader, leader gives her misinformation, she sends it to someone else. She sends it to a group of us, right? Who then, God knows where we diffuse it to. Like, it really is a game of telephone. I I think that's one part of it. And I think the other part of it is that we are very, as a community, but I think also as people, can sometimes be very entrenched in what we were raised with, with what we know or believed to be the norm. So for example, in the same case where this leader is spreading misinformation to a woman I know, I don't know that that woman, for intents and for all intents and purposes, had any actual, like, that she could cite to a source for why she thought this was wrong. She just thought it was wrong. And so I saw myself in her there, right? Is that until I was in college, I was taught to believe that praying with other women was wrong, that it was incorrect and impermissible. And so I imagine that that causes a stronger reaction among people, right? Talk to someone today about legalizing marijuana and how it's not any more dangerous for you than what the doctor in the white coat gives you. And you get sometimes a strong reaction. Thank you. Uh, So my next question. um, We've heard a little bit about some of your, your Personal, especially from Zahra, about your personal experiences with mosque environments and, and, and the challenges that, that women sometimes face. I wonder if you each could take a moment to address that question a little bit more directly. What are the issues that women are facing today when they come to the mosque or come to try and seek knowledge? And, um, and, and why, is that, why is that challenging in this, in this contemporary context, especially when, as several of you noted, there is a, a tradition of female scholarship and female participation in Islamic spaces. Dr. Rania, do you want to start us off? Sure, yes, I'll, I'll start this one. Um, I'll, I'll kind of just use the example here in the West as that's what I'm most familiar with. And the examples of studying overseas are kind of specific to a different time in a different space. 
Here in the States, my impression of the limitations women sometimes face is really access. Access really more than anything else, I think. Um, there are many a masjid and many a teacher and many an organization that welcome women and that women participate in, even if they are not the loudest voices in those organizations. However, the vast majority of places, I think there is limitations. I think those come sometimes from the organizations themselves, but often from us as women ourselves, you know, kind of feeling inhibited or feeling like we don't have role models and examples. Wherever I go and I speak of my own kind of, which I shared with you at the very beginning, kind of my own experience in studying, I find men too, but specifically women, kind of just dumbfounded. Like they had never heard of such a concept. Some women have never even heard of a sheikha, right? Having that huh, at the end of the sheikh word, right? That there is, that such people exist. So the role modeling, I think, is really missing. And I think the um, access is also missing. Um, and I'll just give a very, very brief example of our beautiful Bay Area that's is so resource rich, mashallah, in, Muslim, in Islamic learning and upbringing. Um, but when I moved here for my training, something on the order of eight years ago or nine years ago or something to that effect, the, um, you know, I had a little daughter and it had this experience of access for women, right? And looked around and said, where are the programs for girls? in this wonderful Bay Area where there's tons of stuff going on, scholars coming and going and coming and going, particularly because of the, the hub called Zaytuna, mashallah, there was nothing that I could find that was really dedicated and tailored to a woman and specifically be girls. Um, and hence the Rahma Foundation was born, right? Which is a nonprofit dedicated to educating Muslim women and girls. It's the kind of thing where sometimes unless it's, unless the access is there and unless the space is carved out and made, you know, the elbow room is there, sometimes these things just don't happen. And often the women leading such initiatives are ones who've been inspired and have had the role models to do so. So my hope is that with the more role models that are there and the more access that is there, we'll see a change, inshallah. Um, so yeah, I would agree, access. Um, and another thing that I would add is just uh, the internal uh, inhibitions that she was talking about. Um, one thing that's been really interesting uh, is the sort of nurturing role that I've had to play with all of the khatibas. So literally every single one of the khatibas so far, we've had 12 so far, every single one of them have said, I'm not worthy, I don't have the qualifications, not me, it should be someone else. Um, and, you know, uh, if, you, if you go to our um, website, womensmoths.com, uh, we have a video of Adina Lekovic's uh, khutbah. She gave the first khutbah. And in it, she talks about how, uh, I believe over the past 10 years or so, uh, mosques, mosques across America have opened up more positions um, on their boards and opened up more access uh, to leadership in their mosques, uh, to women, um, yet women are not stepping into those roles. Uh, and the reason for that is because women don't feel qualified, they don't feel worthy, um, they've kind of internalized uh, the limited access and they're, they themselves are stopping themselves. So um, I think that's one of the primary things that we're working on at the Women's Mosque, which is very subtle, but it's very powerful, um, is just that uh, that psychological empowerment that you get from being in a space with your peers. Um, and I'll give one example. Um, 
I have a good friend of mine, Trevina Springer, um, who's a convert. I think she's uh, been Muslim maybe seven years or something. Um, and in the entire time that I've known her, um, I'm always trying to uh, push all of my friends to, uh, to lead me in prayer. Um, and she's the one friend my whole entire life that I've never been able to get me to lead prayer, uh, or get to lead prayer. Um, yet in our space, she led about 100 women in prayer for the first time in her life. Um, and she said afterwards that she just felt safe. She felt that um, she was supported by her peers and by her sisters. It was a space where she felt comfortable to mess up and make a mistake because she knew that if she made a mistake, everyone around her would correct her. And she felt that psychological empowerment that she would not have even dared to, um, you know, uh, try out in any other space. So um, as much as we fix the access problem, there's a, a missing step that needs to be made. And that's what we're working on. We're just trying to get women to feel comfortable and feel um, worthy of uh, taking on these leadership roles so that then they can actually go and take advantage of those new positions that open up. So maybe I'll answer it from a different angle, just a little bit. I think that we're not asking enough who is not present, or we are not asking often enough who is not present. So even in conversations among activists and leaders, we'll point to examples of organizations that we think are doing it right, but if you look closely, even they're not doing it right. And so what do I mean by that? At least once a week, I come across an event announcement that has an all-male speaker lineup. Maybe once a month I come across an organization that has a 90% male board, if not worse. Right? And so what's not happening, and I think what the gap is, is we're saying, oh, well, they've got 10% women, so they're okay. Or they've got a female moderator, so they must have tried. And that's just not enough, right? That those numbers really look the same for me today as they did in 2000 when I first started noticing. And so to make that change, we have to first intentionally ask who's not here? Who is really not here? And did we try? Did we really sincerely try to get them here? And this is true whether we're talking about gender or age or disability or race, or any of the other gaps that we have in our community. And then the second related piece is, why aren't they here? Did we try? Did we accommodate? Are there barriers that we are putting up that we are invisible to because of our own privileges, right? So a common example that where I feel, even I get locked out as a Muslim woman leader in this community, is there are so many decisions that happen about our mosques our community organizations, and our event programming in the men's prayer hall when all of the friends run into each other. And guess who's not there? The 10% of the board or leadership or activists that are women. And so if constantly the conversations are happening in ways and in spaces that don't accommodate women, right, that don't account for childcare needs or don't account for the fact that maybe they're not comfortable with an 11.30 p.m. debrief, right, unless there's ice cream being served, um, that that's just not the way we function. And so I would say it's two parts and we're not doing it enough. The first is who is missing, and the second is what can we do differently to get them there. And sometimes that's about the barriers we put up, sometimes it's about 
actually being intentional and saying we're going to create access or we're going to set quotas or we are going to nurture leadership across genders to ensure that leadership actually happens. There aren't always female teachers for young women to look up to. Maybe because they're there but they're not known, but sometimes if we really can't find them, then I would say what are the men doing to, to support female leadership? To say, I'm not going to talk to the 20 men that can crowd my personal space immediately after I'm done with a panel. Instead, I'll talk to them afterwards, but let me talk to the women who can't elbow their way into this group. Okay, so, so one of the issues on the table here is creating uh, access for women through parallel institutions, through their own independent mosques. And then one of the other issues on the table here is, um, is the question of making women more present and increasing women's access to, um, to mixed gender spaces. Um, I wonder how you guys think about these two aims. Are they in competition with one another? Do they, uh, how, how um, how should we think about investing our efforts as we, as we, you know, want to make Islamic spaces more, more beneficial for women as well? Y'all are very shy. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so I, I think they're both important. Um, you know, uh, one is, I guess more short-term, one's more long-term, one's internal, one's external. Um, at least at the women's mosque, um, there's another thing I'll clear up, is that our only women-only service is the Jummah prayer. So everything else is open to men. So for example, um, during Ramadan, we had uh, a co-ed iftar and qiyam, uh, in which we had all women speakers. Um, and uh, the only thing that men, or we had uh, men give the adhan and we had men lead the prayer. And the way we set up was the prayer was that we had men on the left side, a gap in the middle, and women on the right side. So um, we definitely see the need for both. Um, but I think, uh, I don't think they're in competition with each other. They both serve uh, very important needs. Um, you know, women on their own need a space where they can grow empowered, and then they also do need to have, uh, um, you know, co-ed, uh, I guess, opportunities to create healthier gender dynamics as well. Yeah, I think I would generally agree with what Hesla's saying. I don't necessarily see them in competition. Um, if we're going to get, to be very real with ourselves and talk about what Zahra alluded to right before this is, where are the female scholars? Where are the female leaders? Why are they not present? Or why can't we find them if they're there hiding? <laughs> um, you know, where are they exactly? I think if we're gonna get real with ourselves and figure out how to nurture that, you're going to need both types of spaces. And I would mm -hmm. also strongly argue for the need for women-specific spaces mm -hmm. too. I think for all the reasons I outlined, uh, outlined uh, previously, that there are times where you need the type, you know, the sisterhood that would form that allows you the confidence to go forward, right? Can only really happen if it's same gender, right? So you have this, you know, linking of arms and kind of moving forward, not in a, uh, you know, I'm gonna like take them down kind of way. <laughs> That's not the point, you know, but the point of suhba or sisterhood or companionship of which a peer level, right, colleague level, and then also of like mother-daughter, essentially, teacher-student relationship. And that, as we alluded to before, having it be a male teacher, a female student, there is an inherent barrier there. So I do argue for needing more spaces that are female-specific. 
um, to really nurture strong female role models that don't have the inhibitions to then also, you know, be in a mixed gender environment. Then, in terms of mixed gender, if we're going to talk about those spaces, right, I think that there are people do need to step up to the plate, kind of need to feel that they are empowered, but it, it's a two-way road, right? It's a two-way street in that the women go forward with lack of inhibition, right, and the men accept. I mean, it's, it's both ways, and I think on both ends, there's work that needs to happen. So two things. One is, so this reminds me of a story of, of a coalition of, of leaders that I know and love um, that happens to be all male. And every time the women have, have said, where are the women, uh, the men's response has been, but everyone sends a male representative. And it's like, but you're not looking in the mirror and realizing that you're also sending a, men's rep a male representative. So it's random tangent. But the, the thing that struck me about this question is, Something Hasna said earlier, which is that sometimes it feels like the progressive spaces are actually not inclusive of more conservative mm -hmm. um, voices and perspectives. And so in addition to what's been said about female-specific spaces, but also mixed-gender spaces needing to be nourished in parallel, the thing that gets me that I, I wanted to make sure to actually state about female-only spaces is that there are people that are more comfortable in those spaces. And if all of my energy and all of our energy goes into nurturing women only in mixed gender spaces, because maybe I want all women in mixed gender spaces, then those women get excluded or they don't benefit in the same way. This conversation comes up sometimes around walls in mosques, right? Is that there are some women that prefer to pray behind a wall. And so how do I, as an advocate for women, and not having walls, balance my desire to not pray behind a wall, but also to ensure that those women feel at home in, in the mosque too. And so there's, I think, a balance to be struck in trying to be as inclusive as possible. Half walls are the solution. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the topic of inclusiveness has come up several times here. And, you know, in the, in the sort of Muslim American community, uh, the, the question of inclusiveness is sometimes met with the, the critique that, you know, it's, that too much welcomingness to all kinds of different things will, will, be, will result in like an anything goes Islam or like uh, an inability to recognize Islam as like a distinct thing that has demands on people, etc. Um, what, what do you all have to say in response to that? Okay, you're both looking at me. I guess I'll go. <laughs> um, actually, thank you, Kristen, for bringing that up. I think um, on this topic, um, yeah, I, I think it's a very actually important question. The, here's how I want to present this. The, there are rules in the religion, and there is a multiplicity of opinions in the religion. There is also what we call the jama'ah, Right, the, you know, often we'll say, we're here at Saituna College, and we're talking about Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah is the premise from which we teach from, right, the Sunni opinion of the Jama'ah, the, right, the, the, not the consensus, rather the majority opinion from which we teach. And I think this is what Krista might be alluding to, like how do you, what do you do with the majority opinions from which have withstood the, you know, the test of time, right, over time, both historical and modern, Right, that over time there has been 
countless of scholars, countless scholars that have looked at the legal opinions have come to decisions on what is the majority opinion and what remains the minority opinions. And if you let all things go and all things are treated equal, and I think that's the word I want to use here, if all opinions are treated equally, then it is sort of a balage, right? You go, what if, what's what, right? Because if you look accurately at the opinions of our scholars, you'll find an opinion for just about anything and everything. And I think you, especially our Zaytuna students that are here, you need to understand and know this, as well as all others, that in the legal discourse, there's an opinion about everything. <laughs> that it doesn't mean that all opinions are necessarily equal. And that is what the whole dis scholarly discourse is about, like figuring out what is going to stay within the majority of the Islamic opinions and what are considered to be minority opinions. I think, and what I would like to suggest maybe, is as we move forward, to really think about when we have an initiative, we already, I think, established we need women's spaces, we need women, more women's scholarship and more women's um, suhba, right, companionship. I would like to also remind us and think about you know, being ethical about the decisions we take and what opinions we bring forth and how it is that we, you know, uh, how we treat are all opinions actually equal? Now there is a multiplicity, we're not saying there isn't, but are they all equal? This is where I would disagree. Because then we have to at some point figure out what is the outer rim of what we call the Islamic faith, right? And the various opinions that are within it, and those that are shah are not actually accepted, um, again, by the majority, because there are individuals that will have opinions of all sorts, of all kinds, trust me, all kinds of opinions, <laughs> mashallah. And so I think there's, there's a point of ethics. And from here, I'll kind of just take the step and I'll say, if I switch hats really quickly from you know, an, a, a teacher of Islamic law to a physician, an MD, and we talk of ethics, right? To me, if there are multiple opinions on things, it's very similar in my field that there are multiple, let's say, medications, treatments for a certain illness. And if I were to treat all potential treatments as equal, I ask the question, is that ethical for me as a physician to do so? The answer is no. As a professional in my field, I must deem, based on my training and learning, what is considered to be the optimal treatment and the less optimal treatments and present that as such. And so when all things are presented equal and I say to you, okay, here's category, you're a pregnant woman who needs a medication and there is class A, B, C, D, and X. <laughs> Those are actually the categories. And now you have to figure out, and I'm treating and I'm presenting all five medications to you as equal, and, you, and I go, go ahead and pick. What will you do? <laughs> the reason you came to me as a physician, right, is for me to tell you what makes the most sense from my learned perspective. Right? And so this is a question, I think, of ethics, of knowing there are multiple opinions out there, but are they all, uh, should they all be presented as equal, excuse me, equal to where, the, let's say, the layperson may not be able to distinguish one thing from another and truly pick what would be the proper treatment for their case. So I'll kind of stop there and we'll continue the conversation. Well, I want to I want to get a response to this question from Hasna and Zahra, but but I also want to push you a little bit further to mm -hmm. tell us exactly what you think. Um, do you, what is, in your opinion, the the optimal solution here, the optimal prescription um, of the medication? <laughs> yes, um, you know, I, I mean specifically, you know, when we 
where do you weigh in on this controversy? Like, if women can lead a Jamasala, or like, is that even controversial? Is a women's mosque controversial? What What is your your stake in that? Yeah, I'll, I'll state and I'll restate. You know, my the premise which I came from in the very beginning of saying this a space for women from which to grow, to flourish, to to worship together, to be together. I think is I have no problem with that and do not question at all. Um, its need and its legitimacy at all. Um, if we are gonna talk about specific practices that may deem to be problematic, or the word you might use is controversial, not my own, but yours, um, you know, the Juma prayer in particular probably has caused the biggest uproar, I think. There seem to be other things too that have caused some problems, but again, speaking from a Shafi perspective where I have no trouble with women leading women in prayer at all, right, I have no problem with that. I don't even think twice. And to be very fair and out of respect for the Hanafis and the Maliki scholarship, and, and especially those who are studying those schools in this room, you, you know, you know the rulings, especially our students here, right? You know that as Hanafi women, you know, uh, we'll start with the Malikis first, who consider this to be a impermissible prayer. I mean, that is a real opinion within the Maliki school, woman leading woman in prayer. And for the Hanafis, we know it's makruh tahriman, right? So it's it's like the next thing right after haram. So these are real opinions, okay? And there are majority opinions within those schools. And the Shafi'i opinion of woman leading woman has absolutely no, as I said, no qualms about it at all. It's not like a not so liked opinion, let's stay away from, no, no, no. It's like a perfectly legit opinion. The Shafi'is though, in the realm of the four schools, are the minority in the four schools, because they are the only ones who say it's not a problem, right? However, within their school, they, that's the majority opinion. So now we're getting into like, you know, specifics of, of, uh, of legal questioning, and I don't want to go necessarily too much, because I can speak about this all day if you want, <laughs> and you can see me afterwards for more specific questions on this. So that is the prayer. Well, we come to the Jum'ah, and this is again where the question of ethics that I brought up in, you know, the Jum'ah, the khutbah, a khatib, the Jum'ah, are legal terminology. This is legal terminology that have specific legal um, criteria that must be met. And each school defines what the criteria, and they differ. What a Jum'ah is, who a khatib can be, where a Jum'ah can be held. And, you know, we have wonderful Zahra on the, the, with us here on the panel. I mean, as an attorney, right, these are legal terms. You don't just throw around legal terms and, you know, you have to specify there's criteria that must be met. And so for me, going back to the example of the medications and the different classes of medication, right, you know, we find that in the majority opinion, as most of you know, especially our students here, there isn't an opinion that allows for, again, majority, not individual opinions, but majority opinion that allows for the Juma to be led by a woman, the khutbah being called a khutbah, not a bayan, a bayan would be perfectly fine, a lecture, a dars, a class would be perfectly fine, the Juma where you have the two rakah prayer only, gets into a problematic area because it doesn't fall within any of the four legal schools. However, the dhuhr prayer would be A plus, no problem, at least according to the Shafi school, which I have no trouble with. So here is where we talk about giving too many opinions. This is where the class A or class B medication, class C, class D, class X, right? Where I say to you, you can either have a Jum'ah or you can have a dhuhr, and you don't know much better what's what, because you haven't studied. You come, don't come from a place of scholarship. You're coming from a place of faith in the leadership that's leading, right? Here is, again, a question of ethics. If I compare this again to medicine, I'm saying, 
class A medication, which we know has been tested on humans and does not harm the fetus, whereas class B has not been tested on humans, only on animals, and has not been tested to uh, harm the fetus, but we don't know what it does to humans, right? Or class C that has been tested on animals but does harm the fetus, right? And I say to you, they're all equal, you choose. What happens is exactly what Hassan tells us happens. Only 10% will pray the Dhuhr prayer. 10 to 20% will pray the Dhuhr prayer. The rest of the majority of the people prayed the Juma prayer thinking it was no problem with it at all. Whereas that may be individual opinions that have happened throughout history, but it is again not the majority opinion of any of the four legal schools. So here, this is where I come to a question of ethics and I don't, you know, I, I, I think I implicitly answered whether this is ethical or not. I do have an ethical issue with this. Kind of giving multiplicity of opinions, treating them as equal, not explaining maybe fully what is majority versus minority. And people who are coming from a lay perspective thinking all is good, when in reality, the majority again would say it is not. Thank you, Dr. Rania. Um, so I wanna give you guys a chance to respond to this question also, and then we'll give you all a chance to ask uh, some of your own questions. But, you know, quickly, uh, do you think this is uh, an issue to be concerned about, this idea that uh, you could, you know, be too inclusive of too many different opinions and, and, uh, and wind up, you know, losing hold of some essential quality of Islam? Is that a risk in your perspective? Um, well, quickly, I'll just say, um, if you're interested in learning more about these different opinions, um, our advisor, Sheikh Rima Youssef, actually published an hour-long video um, covering all of the classical scholarship and modern-day scholarship on women leading uh, women in prayer, women leading men in prayer, women's only mosques. Um, she covers everything, um, so you can look that up. Um, and as for this fear of diversity, I think it's not, uh, it's not really in, in the Prophet, peace be upon him's teachings. You know, we know of the hadith about um, uh, the time where someone was reading the Quran in a different way, right? And one of the Sahaba dragged, I think it was Omar, I might be wrong, but... Um, literally dragged this man by the neck to the prophet, peace be upon him, and complained and said he's re reciting the Quran in a different way. Uh, and then the prophet said there are seven different ways to recite the Quran and they're all fine. Um, and I think this is just human nature is that we like to tribalize, we like to uh, you know, get into teams and think that we're on the winning team and that everything else is wrong or that there's a problem with it. And um, I think there's, uh, Islam is not gonna fall apart. You know, um, there's room for uh, flexibility, there's room for diversity, there's mercy in those diverse opinions. Um, and so we shouldn't try to, um, we sh shouldn't try to get rid of the diversity that's inherent in our religion. It's a pluralistic religion. So let's say I agreed with Dr. Rania that the, that the Jummah prayer is a, would it be fair to say like an individual fringe opinion? Like, a, so that, that, let's say I agreed with that as a starting point. What I appreciated about the women's mosque was rather than saying we're committed to this individual minority fringe opinion and if you don't accept it because you are the orthodox majority, you're not welcome. Instead, what they did was they sought to accommodate both, right? And so I don't necessarily think that it's fair to say that they offered 
two medications of different degrees and said pick one and then maybe led lay people to, to make the wrong choice. Instead, what I would say my perspective as an attendee in a khatiba was, they were transparent about their rationale for their decision and what made sense to them. And when they received pushback from people who said, actually, we disagree. We think that you came to the wrong conclusion or this is not acceptable. Rather than become tribalistic and say, well, we're only offering one offering, take it or leave it. Knowing that women were interested in this space from different backgrounds and of various needs, they offered an alternative. So if you are coming to the space, but you disagree with the opinion, but still have a need for sisterhood and for a speaker who connects with you and has your experiences and you don't want to be body shamed at the khutbah or told you shouldn't have gone trick-or-treating or whatever else happens that so many of the terrible khutbahs many of us have sat through week after week, you are still welcome in this space. And we're not going to fight with you about the fact that you disagree with our minority, fringe, radical, progressive, whatever you want to call it, opinion. Instead, come, right? Come and do your own thing, but, but let's build community together. So I don't think that they offered it as, as equal, and I don't think that they necessarily hid the ball on, on where they were coming from. So that's one, one part of it. I also don't think that they're, that they're saying everything goes, right? So there's, uh, I'll use the, the headscarf example. There are a lot of opinions on headscarves. There are majority opinions and minority opinions and cultural interpretations and whatnot. Their rule is that if you are leading the prayer, you cover your hair. If you want to come and pray with me with your hair uncovered, I'm not going to make you feel left out, right? So I'm not shifting on what the opinion is in that regard. Instead, I am not excluding people who maybe aren't there yet or who are not coming there. I am saying everyone is welcome. And what was really touching for me in reading some of the testimonials after the first Jummah was reading from women who hadn't been to a mosque in a decade, who were concerned about raising their children in American Muslim mosques, who don't feel comfortable or safe in the spaces that our community is nurturing. And that's not to say that we shouldn't continue to develop the mainstream mosque spaces or the mixed gender mosque spaces. They were saying, and actually to, to quote Talif Collective, Come to Islam as it is, as you are, right? And I might be paraphrasing here, but it, that's the, the idea, is that everyone is welcome. We're not shifting where we are, except in this one other thing, where we are having a transparent discussion about where we come from, and then we're offering an alternative, and we're not judging either. Thank you. Okay, now we are ready to take your questions. So uh, there's a mic here. And you are welcome to come and, uh, and shoot a question at our panel here if, uh, if you want to line up in advance of asking your, your question over at the, um, the pew parallel to the wall. You're more than welcome to do that. And if you all don't have more questions, I can keep them going. <laughs> yeah, some mootness. You're going to project? You're going to project rather than coming to the mic. And also, I'm seeing a few congregants who've been to our Jummah, so it would be great for you guys to share uh, what the experience was like, inshallah. Uh, my Islamic legal philosophy students will know that I'm going to ask something provocative, so 
um, I actually am interested in the question, uh, it's kind of a little bit of a seg off of what uh, Zahra, you mentioned, that there was a rumor about, and, and I'm not directing this question to you per se, but I'm just segging off of something you said. Um, uh, and maybe everybody could talk to this, or it's probably maybe directed mostly to Hasna actually, mm -hmm. but um, others can chime in. Uh, about the rumor that it's, it's for now, it's a women-only congregation, but the goal, there's the secret agenda goal <laughs> to make it. It's a, like the a, Brotherhood a, Infiltration. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so so um, my question is, um, let's assume that that's not the goal, that the goal isn't to secretly in five or six years make it a mixed gender. Um, and, I, and I just ask, why not? Um, because, and I'm not saying that's a legitimate opinion, I'm just, I'm just asking the why not. Because I, I, I think, you know, there's kind of, um, I think Muslims are often a little bit stuck between two extremes, which maybe the Islamic cultural tradition of maybe over covering up women and women have to be inside of a room that's inside of a house, that's inside of a curtain and never come outside. And so that's one extreme which Islam kind of turned into culturally, you know, for various reasons. And the other extreme of, of maybe where many Western societies are now is that whether you're a man or a woman is just like kind of like if your hair is brown or, or yellow, it really is not that uh, defines you too much. Uh, it's kind of just a social construct and there's really no reality to gender. Um, and so, if we're gonna, you know, I, I'm just wondering why, why, what ethical principle or, 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 or uh, hesitation is there in the mosque of just being a mixed gender women-led mosque? Um, and, uh, you know, I'll take my answer off the air. Um, so when we first started, uh, the most pushback that we got was from the progressive, um, or from the left, uh, and people really wanted us to be a mixed gender space. Um, and number one, they already exist, so this is different. Um, number two, or probably the biggest issue for me is that if it were mixed gender, then conservative women would not even step foot in it. And from the outstart, this has been about creating a middle ground space where everyone can come and where we can have dialogue. And we get that. We have. Uh, progressive women, we have conservative women who come and talk, and I don't think you would get that in um, that sort of space. Um, and third, I think that inherent in that too, because uh, there was a time before, before I decided it was going to be a women's mosque, there was a time where I was thinking of making it co-ed, and I think inherent in that was wanting um, male validation um, I, I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of the pushback that we got was coming from people who felt like, oh, if it's just women or a women's only space, then it's not really that empowering. Um, and I think there's a problem with that. Um, it is empowering, and you don't need men there to feel empowered. You don't need men to be in the audience um, to feel like a real khatiba. You are a real khatiba, even if it's um, just to a women's audience. So um, those are my answers for that. Thank you. 
Assalamualaikum. Thank you for the wonderful presentation. So a couple of weeks ago, I was going to give the khutbah at the Kalam essay, and a sister approached me and said, you know, you should talk about this. And in my mind, I was like, how the heck am I going to talk about this? I can't talk about it, right? So that made me start thinking, like, well, what can we do about that? So one thing that's very, that came to my mind immediately is like, oh, women should write more khutbahs. And so I wanted to ask one thing, like, how do you think maybe is that a good idea and how do we make that happen outside of, you know, this women's mosque but in other masajid? But the other thing that I started thinking about is last year in Hanafi fiqh, we had a discussion about this pre-bayan to the khutbah. So you have a bayan that's given, then you have the adhan, then the khutbah proper. And that, to me, that bayan has no legal baggage whatsoever. You know, a three-year-old could give that bayan. So is that something that, I mean, I would ask Sheikh Harania, do you think that's ethical, like to have maybe that start happening? And to the other panelists, like, what are your thoughts about doing that outside of this women's mosque and other spaces as well? Um, yeah. Sure. Um, so, you know, thank you for the, for the question, because I think it goes back to the question we had just answered prior. To this, you know, where I was talking about is it, you know, the ethical nature of this, and I think your question also brings up this point of implications, right? And I hope this is something we can actually spend a little bit of time talking about. What are the implications of the decisions we make, and of, um, you know, allowing this, you know, the pluralistic opinions which they are? But what are the implications? Because that's actually what I'm more interested in. So when you say bayan, right, and you say, okay, let's have Let's have, let's change the chutzpah, if I'm hearing you right, let's change Juma chutzpah to be bayan, and let's change the Juma to raka prayers to be luhur. You know, let's change, let, so I'm hearing you say, let's do this to where it's within, it is still addressing everything that Zahra and Hassan are talking about, a woman's space, woman's prayers, scholarship, leadership, sisterhood. But how about we have it within what would be deemed also the majority opinion of Islamic scholarship? where if the point is to gather the woman and hear a talk by woman, why call it a khutbah if that's a legal term in which the khatib, it requires maleness according to the majority opinion, is what I'm hearing you say. Why not call it a bayan or call it a dars or a class or a lecture or whatever you want to call it, right? And still get the woman to present the talk. Why not lead, according to the Shafi'i opinion, the woman lead the Luhud prayer and still be fully within the four schools of law, within the majority, I should say, uh, schools of Islam. And I think, so So here's where I want to ask about, you know, I'll pose the question back about implications of what we do, because actually that's what I'm more interested in. Because for me, if I dig past all of this, dig past it all, right, it's like, what are the root causes from which this is sprouting, okay? And if the root causes, because those are what we should address, the root causes, and if the root causes is feeling of not having space and time and place and to grow and nurture, then let's create that. But maybe also be very mindful. I'm going to use very, very specific words like, like, let's try to see if this could be sustainable too. And sustainability requires that A, Opinions, and by the way, when I said equality of opinions, I didn't mean just one opinion or two. I mean, there's four schools, each of them have so many opinions within them. I would love that all of these opinions are heard. The four schools completely disagree on <laughs> where the female imamship lies in the first place, right? So have these opinions there, but they're all still within the norm of Islamic scholarship, right? I should say majority Islamic scholarship to, to really be, so like implications of what we're doing. And I would like to also suggest the concept of sustainability. So if you think back to the very first thing I said about my female teachers in Syria, 
and I said this thing about the proof being in the pudding, right? Will, it, will this last the test of time? And that goes back to sustainability. And I think ultimately, we'll see, right? Well, we'll see how things go. And I will say, I would like to say 50 years later after the women's movement of Syria, and what's much older than that, the women's massage of China, which is actually a very different concept. And if I have a minute, if I can just share really briefly what those are like, because, and we had Rahma Foundation had the honor of actually hosting one of the um, female scholars of uh, the Chinese massage, it was amazing. She gave the whole talk to us in Chinese with the translator, it was just the coolest thing. And she was talking about what it is she does in China. Um, and basically you should know that these are female institutions that are staunchly Hanafi, <laughs> mashallah, which is amazing to me. And so we said to her, okay, so you teach and you, and you, you do all these classes and all this learning, and she's Azhari trained, right? And, and beautiful work that they do. When it comes time to the five daily prayers, the male imam comes and leads the prayer, according to the Hanafi school. It's interesting. Yet the flourishing that's happening within the mosque of women's scholarship and girls learning and women learning and on this is going, it's actually really interesting. This is, I'm repeating what she's saying, right? This is her perspective being a sheikha there in China. Um, so to me, that's actually really interesting. And then seeing firsthand what the women did in Syria who are predominantly Shafi, so they were able to actually lead prayer themselves. But back to this idea of bayan versus khutbah, and Luhud versus Jum'ah, I think it's a very valid question. And I think at the end of the day, I'm not here like tit for tat, what's better, what's, you know. I'm actually, my question is more ethics, sustainability, right, and implications. And that's actually where I'm coming from, I think, with all of this. Um, I, I will say that um, I think that pre-Khutbah Bayan by a woman in a co-ed mosque uh, not leading prayer, but just the talk or giving announcements or whatever it is, um, that does, a, uh, that does um, uh, serve a specific need, and that's what Zahra was talking about, right? That, um, that ability to address that captive audience. Um, and yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, it's not something that we're doing, but in mosques that we're partnering with and we're talking to, uh, actually, to date, there are three different mosques that have reached out to us and asked us to come do a women-led, women-only Jummah before their Jummah service. Um, and some of these imams are saying that they want to do, uh, one of the mosques is doing um, just women giving uh, the announcements. Um, some of them want to um, have women-led uh, pre-khutbah bayan. So that's an option for those mosques, um, and it does serve a specific need for those mosques. So. Um, I, I know there are some alternative spaces, I think, in New York that are rising up, some third spaces that are kind of playing with that. So actually, now I will say. Um, so I think that this is where I acknowledge that I'm not a scholar of, of fiqh, um, and that my default is conservative and inclusive. And so though I feel the implications of the inability for women to address the, the gatherings in the way that men can, I'm not sure that incorporating women into mixed gender Juma prayers is the answer. If for no other reason, then the people I was trying to reach aren't going to come to that Juma prayer anymore, right? So acknowledging that, that there are, of course, like religious critiques of that strategy, but also just from like an effectiveness perspective, it's not going to solve the issues. What I would pose to a masjid that is considering that is 
how do you better include women, or how, how can we better include women in the leadership and teaching work of that masjid in ways that don't drive people out? Now, of course, there are places where the cost makes sense. So a couple of years ago, we organized a panel of lawyers addressing FBI visits in the Muslim community. Now, the lawyers that do that in the Bay Area, in nonprofit organizations, over 90% women. The clientele, over 90% men. And so, by virtue of just how it happened, the panel was all women. And one of the men passed up a note that said, you couldn't find a male speaker for this. And we really couldn't. We really couldn't. Like, it wasn't even, and, and so, there, maybe that's a line to draw, right? Uh, because there isn't a religious basis for that man's complaint. Um, and for all intents and purposes, you needed an all-female panel. And so I, I would err on the side of conservative for the purposes of inclusive. So thank you guys for being here. Um, <laughs> this is our time warning. <laughs> Got it. Okay. But, uh, no, no. Actually, I just have a question okay, and a no, comment. I, we I are, know we I are technically <laughs> over time, and, and I thought you were coming to, to tell us to go home. But, uh, no, please, I, your just, I do work here, and but I just have a question and a comment. Well, first, I'll start with my comment. So I grew up in a Muslim community that I saw women empowered. I did not see... Um, women feeling left out or left behind. Um, and I think the, one of the reasons why I'm still gung-ho about even being Muslim and my Islamic identity in America is because of the women that I saw in my community growing up as a child and then a teenager into adulthood. And so, um, and I come from a, a special trajectory that stems, my great-grandmother was in the Nation of Islam, my grandparents were in the Nation of Islam. <clears throat> and my parents then followed the trajectory of Imam Warthi Muhammad, who was going more of an orthodox, like Sunni Islamic tradition route. So one of the things that I find myself um, doing often is interviewing women that are older than me and asking them, like, how did you survive? How did you get through? Um, like witnessing lynchings and, and witnessing racism and, and uh, prejudice and sexism and all these things. And so I'm, I'm constantly in conversation with these women. And one of the things that I find is I'm learning how to maintain faith and also being a woman and then also knowing, okay, how do I take this uh, special history that I'm a part of and share that with other people? And so one of the things I'm curious to know about is what ways are you guys, specifically the women's mosque, how are you um, engaging conversation with women who are elders in the community, who've been here, who've survived through lots of different um, waves, I guess, within the Muslim community, because there's been times when some things have been more popular than other things, and you know, there's always something that's going on that we have to address. So what are ways in which you're conversing with the elders and pioneers of the Muslim community? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and one of the elements, or one of the things that's different about our Jummah service is that 
uh, after the prayer, we actually have a Q&A discussion circle with the imam, so um, in order to increase access to the imam. But what goes on during those uh, Q&A circles um, is exactly that. Um, we have lots of elders in our community, um, specifically from the African American community, who speak up every Jumma in our Q&A session. And um, I'm going to pick on the congregants again. You can speak to that. Um, uh, but but that's exactly uh, their chance and everyone's chance to engage. Uh, the community and also engage the imam and push back if they need to. Um, and it's interesting that you brought that up, you know, about things going on in the media, or not in the media, but things going on in um, society and it coming up uh, in, um, in the khutbah. That's actually something that one of our congregate members uh, uh, brought up in this last discussion circle. Um, and she told us how um, one of the things that that was the tipping point for her to stop going to the mosque was that there were things going on in society and she remembers just going to a Jummah once and the Imam didn't even address it and she thanked our khutba, uh, our last khutba um, for bringing up Black Lives Matter in her khutba. Uh, um, so that is one of the benefits for, uh, of having that Q&A discussion circle is that it's not just a back and forth between the imam, but it's really um, about giving everyone that chance to have that dialogue and hearing from all the different diverse perspectives. You know, they're women of all ages, all sects, all walks of life, all different levels of religious practice, um, and we're able to speak with one another and hear one another. So we are technically over time, but since we did start a few minutes late, I just want to suggest that if anyone has a burning question that they really, really want to get answered or, or a comment that they, they want to share, um, yeah, one last chance. Anyone? Oh, uh, yeah. Go for it. all seem to have the same conclusion that really this two rakah prayer of Jamaah should be for just for duha. So I was kind of wanting to know what was the reason. It doesn't take more than five minutes to add two more units at the end of the prayer. And then kind of my follow-up question is, you have this great video on YouTube, one hour long, explaining it, but could you speak to kind of how you did your due diligence? You mentioned Tatlif Collective. Did you talk to Sheikh Osama Kanan? Did you talk to other masjids? Is this like a single opinion posted to YouTube one hour long? Do you take a survey of many imams? So I kind of just hope that you can speak to that. Sure. Um, so we have uh, a pretty diverse um, advisory council. So we have um, conservative, progressive, um, you know, everything in between. Um, and we did consult with all of them, and we were advised in the beginning that this was uh, a perspective that some people would say that um, you should, uh, instead of doing a, a Jumma and uh, two Rakat prayer, you should do a Bayan and a Dhuhr prayer. Um, and I think in the beginning, we actually didn't realize that that was, uh, it, it was going to be as big a deal as it became. Um, I think in the beginning, we were thinking that um, it was going to be more of an extru uh, or a minority that was going to have that opinion or who was going to come and, um, and follow that 
that ruling. So I think that's more of us just not realizing, you know, where where the majority of Muslims kind of stood on this issue, um, and so we adjusted uh, about three months in and started to um, uh, include the Dhuhr prayer as part of our service at that time. Okay, thank you all for coming tonight, and thank you so much to our panelists. I could listen to you all talk all night long, but I suppose you guys are probably getting tired, and maybe our audience too, so. Um, thank you also to Zaytuna College for bringing this conversation uh, forward, and I hope that we can continue engaging with these issues together as a community in the future, inshallah. Thank you for being a sustainer of Zaytuna College as a member of 12,000 Strong. Tell your friends and family about the benefits of supporting America's first Muslim liberal arts college.